0: So tonight I want to go back to some fundamentals in both meditation and our spiritual life um, and talk about the first step of the Eightfold Path in Buddhism, which is called wise understanding. Um, and wise understanding, let's see, I'll start with an account. I was in the airport in Miami on one of my uh, sojourns leading retreats in other places and walking through the concourse and this guy came up to me and said, Jack is that you? and I said, yeah, and he said "Um, do you remember me? I sat a a long retreat with you back in
1: 1978 I said,
0: well remind me your name, you know, whatever And then he said, he said, I haven't really been that diligent a student of meditation but last year I had a heart attack and I was being wheeled down the corridor of the hospital on a gurney um, to have uh, emergency surgery and what really mattered to me was that I had learned how to be mindful and how to be with the fear and the intensity in my body and um, some of the pain that I was experiencing and I really knew how to work with it from the meditation practice. I I might not be that diligent a student but it really made a difference at that time and I just want to let you know that. So it it was a lovely moment. It says in one of the great Buddhist texts, if the seeds of understanding were not already within you, then there would be no way for you to follow the path because the path isn't outside yourself. The path is really back to yourself. And so just because the seeds of understanding are found within you, already planted, is it possible for you to awaken wisdom, compassion? um, The fruits of spiritual life are actually ripening in yourself. And one of the ways to understand this. Um, here you come and you sit after a, perhaps a busy day at work and then driving on the freeway and so forth, and you sit and your mind you know, has its upheavals and its thoughts and reruns and all of that. The first thing you notice is that it has a mind of its own, right, basically, that it's not so much in your control. But there's some other dimension of being that we all know quite well that's not the dimension of our worries and our to-do lists and our plans and fears and all of that stuff that runs through. This is a poem from Billy Collins called Aimless Love. It's always nice to do poetry. It's like the music of language. It changes things. This morning, as I walked along the lakeshore, I fell in love with a wren. And later in the day, with a mouse, the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress still at her machine in the tailor's window and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words. The love of the chestnut, the jazz cap, one hand on the wheel, the clean white shirt, The miniature orange tree, the love of the hot evening shower, the highway that cuts across Florida. No waiting, no huffiness, no rancor, just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water and for the dead mouse still dressed in its light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod ready for Cupid's next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink gazing down affectionately at the soap, so patient, so patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish, and I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. And there's something about sitting in meditation or bringing the quality of mindfulness, which sitting is a practice for, that opens us to a different way of being, a shift of identity from our ordinary daily life from the small sense of self or what's called the body of fear to something bigger. What matters is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. So when the Buddhist texts begin to invite us to practice and to awaken our own inner wisdom, they start with this phrase, O nobly born, in certain texts, or O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, the awakened ones, remember who you really are. And there is then within us a capacity to awaken wisdom, dignity, connectedness, Freedom to see with the eyes of wisdom this amazing dance of life, and to sit is to to take a seat in the center of it all, like the Buddha under our tree, and to allow the quality of wisdom of the one who knows to awaken within us. Now I use the phrase "one who knows" because it was a phrase my teacher Ajahn Chah loved to use, and in the Thai language. Um, One of the words for Buddha is pu-ru. Pu is a shortened uh, word from the Sanskrit, which means person. Um, And ru is the word for sees or knows or understands. Um, And it's an epithet for the Buddha, the one who knows, that also points to our own inner Buddha nature. The one who knows and so we go through the experiences of our life and we get caught in different ways and underneath and around and more spacious than and wiser is the space of awareness itself that says oh getting really caught today aren't we hmm that's the one who knows getting lost again in this or oh isn't that a beautiful inspiration or longing it's the place of deep wisdom in ourselves And as we sit, what we do is allow ourselves to see the play of experience, to feel how the breath breathes itself, and how the thoughts rise and fall, you know, like waves of the ocean, and emotions come and go, the foundations of mindfulness, and begin to trust in this process the space of awareness itself, that we can know and see and be aware of the play of these human experiences. Rumi puts it this way, he says, Pay regular visits to yourself. And so when we meditate, in a way, it's just coming home, it's coming back to ourselves. Now, people here are nobly born, and they go, Yeah, right. You know, you should have seen me earlier um, in the day. And this is, of course, um, we have um, so much loyalty to our suffering and neurosis that. There are ways that it's hard to imagine. Um, I like this passage that I read often from the Jungian analyst Robert Johnson, who writes, Curiously, people resist the noble aspects of their shadow more strenuously than they hide their dark sides. It's more disrupting to find that you have a profound nobility of character than to find out you're a bum. And it's with that understanding that I start this new book, The Wise Heart, that I've done on the Guide to Buddhist Psychology, um, really beginning with the understanding of what's possible for us as human beings. And it's really not that complicated. Um, Lama Yeshe, great Tibetan Lama, puts it this way. He said, to become a psychologist, your own psychologist, you don't have to learn some big philosophy. All you have to do is examine your own mind. You already examine the material things around you every day. Every morning you check out the food in your refrigerator. Why not check out the state of your own mind? Investigating your own mind is more important than the refrigerator. <laughs> Tibetan Lama's advice. So we, we stop. We let ourselves open to a stillness or a silence or listening. And mindfulness, the space of mindfulness is the space of listening without judgment, without grasping, without resistance, without trying to make it some other way, but rather seeing the mystery of our incarnation, the mystery of these human bodies that we're in, which are so strange, really. I mean, if you came from some other planet and saw all these people moving around, it would look really weird. We would look really weird. I mean, we do we are, I mean, eyeballs are the strangest thing, and they really are, they are, you know, and ears and the way they're shaped, you know, and little bits of fur, and as I say, this hole at one end into which we stuff dead plants and animals all the time and grind them up, and I mean, it's bizarre, and and little bits of our claws that are left, those nails, and I mean, how did you get in there, you know? So mindfulness isn't so much about making something happen as it is making the space of knowing, the one who knows, that sees the mystery of life without the judgment, without the evaluation and the grasping. We see the way things are. And in doing so, we already step out of the battle. As Ajahn Shah said, we stop the war with things. Instead of struggling all the time with the way the world is, we say, how is it, this mystery? So from the Sun magazine, one of my favorite magazines, there are these readers write in sections, and this month it was on patriotism, and I thought, hmm, let's see how this one goes. <laughs> when the U.S. invaded Iraq in March 2003, I took leave from my middle management job brought a folding chair and a hand-scrawled sign down to the federal building and fasted for peace for one week. I wasn't alone. There were other anti-war protesters on the sidewalk with me and support the troop counter-demonstrators across the street in front of the bank. At first, I seethed at our opponents, whom we called the pro-war people. Then came John carrying his three-foot-high sign that read, Peace, in neat block letters. John lived in a one-room cabin in the woods and walked into the city every day, two hours each way, to take part in the protests. A Korean War veteran, he visited the protesters across the street, chatting with a fierce-looking man with a beret, mirrored sunglasses, and a chest covered with medals. Following John's inspiration, I, too, walked over to talk to this veteran, whose name was Tim. I even offered to buy him a cup of coffee. He declined and offered to buy me one, but I turned him down because of my fast. Still, an (laughs) unlikely mutual admiration grew between us, and we crossed the street several times a day to talk. As the week wore on, tensions rose. Tim came over to read me the poem, The Soldier Fights On. A group of anti-war protesters surrounded him, demanded to know what he was doing on our side of the street. (laughs) Tim snapped back at them, and I had to step in to break up the shouting match. The anti-war protesters walked away while Tim and I shook hands. A little while later, the opposite sidewalk was wild with shouting and pushing. Tim got in the middle and broke up an argument between his crew and a veteran for peace. Afterward, he crossed over and said to me, I gotta go. I can't take it anymore, his mouth twisted, one tear coming down his cheek. I hate this war. I cry about it every night. More tears rolled beneath the sunglasses. He said, I have to do something to support the troops, the the people over there. I had to do it to keep from going crazy. And I held him while he sobbed. To rest in the one who knows is to listen and sense and see this life with openness and care, without judgment, without resistance. To see the way it is, this mystery of our humanity and all the struggles that we all have to try and get through it. And there comes this shift of identity from the small sense, our positions, the way we think things should be, into a spaciousness. Even when we come to sit in meditation, or maybe especially, it becomes really apparent. You sit down and you're tired from the day, or you're restless, or you're mind is full of judgment or it tells stories, you know, you know those stories, don't you? Um, Or you've got a lot of self-judgment. So much of that happens. I mean, I remember, I think I've told you this story of how when I was first in the forest monastery, because in the Peace Corps, I'd worked in medical teams, um, tropical medicine, malaria, typhoid, leprosy, different projects. Um, And when I was sitting quietly in my little hut in the forest monastery after a month or two, I began to notice that there were parts of my skin that I couldn't feel very clearly. You know, there wasn't much sensation there. And of course, when you're meditating, everything gets heightened, you're paying attention. And then I thought one day, oh dear, that's one of the first signs of leprosy, you know, is a numbness. And then my mind just went. You know how minds do you know, and for a few days, it's like, oh, you know, all that work with the people with leprosy, and now I have it, and what am I going to tell my mother, you know, hi, mom, your son is a leper, right, he's never coming home, I'm going to live in a leper colony, I mean, the whole fantasies, right, it's fantastic, and then like three days later, and I'm terrified, and this whole thing, I get the courage to talk to this senior monk who, I didn't talk to him right directly about that. I just said, "Do you ever have places on your skin where you couldn't feel anything? He said, oh sure, when you meditate, you get all areas of sensation that are very strong and then ones that disappear and the whole body dissolves and sometimes you feel tingles all over and sometimes you feel just space and you can't find the body, and sometimes heavy and light and warm and cool. Oh, that's so natural. And so, you know, three days of living like a leper and then in an instant, it just went away. It's like Mark Twain said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened, right? (laughs) So you sit and you see all this stuff, the the body of fear, the small sense of self, as I say, um, and you can either be lost in it, which we are for certain periods of time, or you can rest in the one who knows, Say, oh yeah, there's the part that's afraid, and there's the part that thinks it's you know bad in this way. All those self-judgments, and there's the inflated part, and so forth. Um, in one of history's more unlikely acts of totalitarianism, the Chinese government has banned Buddhist monks in Tibet from reincarnating without government permission. <laughs> According to a statement issued by the State Administration for Religious Affairs last July, the new law, which went into effect in August, strictly stipulates the procedures by which one is to reincarnate and is an important move to institutionalize management of reincarnation. (laughs) You know how bad government can be, right? But what Chogyam Trungpa, the Tibetan Lama, talked about, he talked about the bureaucracy of ego. He said not only is there... The outer bureaucracy, but then you close your eyes, and there are the inner bureaucrats you know what i 'm talking about, and so forth, so you sit and there you are, sleepy or restless, or you know planning or frightened or whatever. What do you do? What you do is you bow to it and say, "Oh, this is sleepiness, and this is restlessness, and this is the planning mind, and this is judgment. Um, And this is fear. Oh, I know you, fear. I've seen you quite often, as a matter of fact. And after a while, you know, 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 times, fear comes and it kind of tries to scare you and you say, oh, fear, is that you again? You know, it's like you make friends with it a little bit because you're resting in the one who knows rather than getting lost so fully in the different plots and dramas that come on the screen. Sometimes it's your grief that comes, and that's really hard. We sit and the ungrieved tears of our life, because we've been so busy, show themselves. Um, Maladoma um, uh, my colleague and friend who's a West African medicine man, said when he first came to America, he was shocked. He said, your streets are full of the ungrieved dead. Those who died who are homeless, those who died in old age homes you know, those who died in other ways that weren't honored or cared for. Um, and when we sit, the tears and the grief that we haven't had time for, they also show themselves. As Emily Dickens says, Dickinson says, there is a pain so utter, it covers substance up, excuse me, it swallows substance up, then covers the abyss with trance so memory can step across it as within a swoon. And sometimes we kind of numb ourselves, and then as a result, we're able to function. But when we sit, all the things of our life start to come alive. And then what do you do with it? You know, from our ordinary way, we judge it, this is wrong and that's right, but from the one who knows, there's a kind of graciousness. So sleepiness comes, and it's just your body reminding you, hey, you've been running me around for weeks now and finally you meditate and i get to sleep thank you you know i'm tired and it's not judged as they say in one of the Thai monasteries where i practice they call sleep the poor man's nirvana right it's some respect for it it's it's we need it and there's some beauty to it and nobody not a single person who's ever meditated for any period of time in this world um, has uh, missed out on periods of sleepiness. It's just part of our humanity, as is worry and as is delight and as is joy and as is, you know, longing. They're part of the game. And so we begin to sit in a culture that doesn't sit still, in a culture that tells us to distract ourselves and not to feel. And as we do, we notice expansion and contraction and fear and joy and all of these things. Um, And with it, there comes somehow a greater capacity to tolerate them all. This from James Baldwin, who's writing a course about racism and kind of all the follies that we project on everybody else and the suffering from it. He says, I imagine one of the reasons that people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And so when we sit, we let ourselves be with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows as our humanity, our whole humanity, My days are short, writes this friend who just died from cancer. And as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and ease it brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting and every fearful fantasy, you can imagine being very sick those fantasies, for every fearful fantasy and every pain and ache I sat through, and every itch I didn't scratch, was a training for kindness, a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now as I face my death. And it's the one who knows that is able to open to joy and sorrow, to um, use the Buddhist image, to light a lamp in the darkness of confusion to let the sun rise and to see the way things are. And the way things are is a world of unbearable beauty and ocean of tears. It's our, it's our world, our lot. And as it says in the Nikaya, in the Buddhist text, we thought the things of this world would be permanent. They are not. We thought ourselves to be lasting. We are not. We thought that we could escape death. We will not. It's pretty strong medicine, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And the one who knows says, yeah, this is the way things are. It sits and walks and recognizes the, the truth of this incarnation, of this life, with a spaciousness. I remember, I like to tell the story of these friends who were sitting in um, one of our early three-month retreats at the center we have in Massachusetts, in Barry, We also have a beautiful two-month spring retreat here in the retreat center. And because a number of ex-staff were sitting there, folks came to talk to me t- toward the middle or the end of it and asked about particular people, how was Mary doing on the retreat? And I thought, and I said, "Whoa, she went through some really, a lot of body pain and you know, some fearful things and stuff, but she's really doing good, you know, and how is um, Arthur doing? Oh, Art, yeah, he went through this kind of stuff, but he's doing pretty good, and ask about somebody else, you know, Jonathan, these kind of experiences, he's also doing pretty good, and the person looked at me and said, you tell me they're all doing good, what exactly does doing good mean? And I was just being kind of spontaneous and glib in a way in answering, or kind of natural, and I reflected for a minute and I said, it means they haven't left yet. (laughs) And I was quite serious about that because doing good in meditation isn't about the experience. Sometimes the pain you have or the grief or the tears or the longing or the love or the joy or whatever it is, that's exactly the thing that will teach you patience, that will teach you steadiness, that will support resting in the one who knows. So it's not the content, but the one who knows, sees that this world is a play of opposites. Light and dark, sweet and sour, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, gain and loss, joy and sorrow. That's the, the, the weaving the tapestry of incarnation. As it says in the Tao Te Ching, when people see some things as beautiful, Others become ugly. When people see some things as good, others become bad. Being and non-being create each other. Difficult and easy support each other. Long and short define each other. High and low depend on each other. When things arise, the master lets them come. When things disappear, she lets them go. She has but doesn't possess. She acts but doesn't expect. If you rest in the Tao, everything will fall into place. And this is part of the wisdom of the one who knows, this dance of the opposites. Um, And it's a dance that's, that's really different than our ordinary spiritual ideas. That if I get really good at meditation and I become a really spiritual person in some deep way, then all my problems will go away and I'll be happy all the time and smiling and joyful and stuff. You know, and it just doesn't work that way. What you have is incarnation. That's just the way, the way that things are. I read this so many times, but it fits here. If you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate, if you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment just where you are, you are probably a dog. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We have all these ideals about how you're going to be. Do you know how you're going to be? The way you are. But the one who knows is gracious and says, yes, praise and blame, expansion and contraction, gain and loss, this is the way things are. The one who knows also understands that things aren't happening by accident, but that they arise due to conditions, um, which means that what we practice is what happens um, the way that we are. If we practice hatred and fear and aggression and practice it regularly and we get angry and aggressive all the time, then what's going to be the habit of consciousness in new situations? That very same thing. Nelson Mandela puts it this way. He says, if people can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love. So what are we teaching ourselves? And I remember my dear friend Sharon Salzberg, who's written these wonderful books on loving kindness and faith and things like that, a colleague. Um, And she was doing her metta or loving kindness practice in the beginning. And she said, you know, it just wasn't happening. She would be reciting the inner intentions, may I be safe and well and filled with loving kindness and happy. She said, I just didn't feel anything. It's like I'll do it over and over because my teacher said to do it and i doing, do it and do it and do it. Nothing happened. I was sort of getting frustrated with myself and judging myself. I'm not any good at this and so forth. She said, and but I kept doing it and then I was in the little bathroom of the meditation hut that I was there and I dropped the glass and the chatter on the ground and um, as it, as it shattered, I said, oh, you clumsy fool, I love you, and she said, oh, I guess it's working, you know. If people can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love, and it's not by accident. What do we practice? Patience, generosity, care, presence, clarity, As we cultivate those, those become available in consciousness. The one who knows understands that this is our potential, that this is possible. The one who knows also realizes that the whole dance of conditioned phenomena that arises and passes is a river of change, a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream... This is the description of every day. Because what happened today? It's gone. How about yesterday? Where is it? How about the 1990s, you know? They're back with the pharaohs you know, and, and the ancient empires. They are completely disappeared. They're back with the dinosaurs, right? Remember the year 2000? There was gonna be this whole Y2K thing. Gonzo just completely disappeared, right? Troops out of emptiness, it appears, and then it disappears. And the game is, from the one who knows, is to be relaxed and gracious and generous, to enjoy life, to, to take pleasure in its beauty, to enjoy the capacity to be present, to love, to know and learn as we do, but not to cling to it. Not to hold on to it, because it's changing all the time. When you hold on, you get rope burn, basically. And when you let go, there's a, a graciousness or an ease. Not to judge so much as the meditation instructions from Julia Child's cooking show. She says, when you're in the kitchen and you drop the lamb... You can just pick it up. Who's going to know? You know. And same thing, you know, you make mistakes. The one who knows says, oh, this is a mistake. You've even made this mistake before. laughs a little bit. That's the way it is. Suzuki Roshi says, when we realize the everlasting truth that everything changes and find our composure in it, there we find ourselves in nirvana. And nirvana means peace, it means ease and the absence of conflict, the end of struggle, the putting out of the uh, fire of conflict with the way things are. It means that we come to rest in the knowing in the reality of the present, and there's a timeless quality to it. It's really um the eternal present. Aldous Huxley. See if I can find you here, Aldous. Hmm. There's Ellen Watts, pretty good, but they were friends. An idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. Future time is in the idea of endless progress, is the devil's work, every day demanding human sacrifice on an enormous scale. <clears throat> an idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. And to come back to the one who knows is to rest in the reality of the present rather than all the fears and plans and memories and all that stuff that we have and that are part of our humanity, but they're not the essential part. Hmm. As people meditate, there comes a kind of innocence that grows. On retreats, if you watch people who come for a week to meditate, after two or three days, they're out doing this beautiful walking meditation, and they look like kids again. And it feels like it. You're out in the grass, and you take a step, or out out in the meadow here, and because you're present in a way that you're not usually um, there for, It feels like you're two years old again and you're this little girl or this little boy and you smell the bay leaves and you feel the sponginess of the grass and the earth and the earthworms under your feet. And there's a way in which people become beautifully alive just by being present. Storm Jameson, the novelist, says, there's only one world, the world pressing against you at this minute. There's only one minute in which you are alive, the minute here and now. And the only way to live is by accepting each minute, each moment, as an unrepeatable miracle. And there comes this kind of openness or mystery when we return to the space of awareness, to the one who knows. And with it, a kind of deep freedom. Because we see with the eyes of the Buddha, oh, here we are in this life, this incarnation. It becomes more spacious. The image from the Buddha is if you take a spoon of salt and put it in a cup and drink it, the salt makes the water very salty, right? But if you take that same spoon of salt and put it in a lake, the water still tastes pure and clear. And if you can take the plans and memories and dilemmas and conflicts and all of those things that are part of life and step back and just let them be held in the space of awareness. There comes an ease, a graciousness. Instead of being the owner of things, there comes the possibility of playfulness, simplicity, a kind of ease and the people that I know that I admire when I think of having a great deal of wisdom, my teacher Mahagosananda in Cambodia or Ari Ratana in Sri Lanka and so forth, maybe the Dalai Lama because he's such an amazing world figure now, they all had tremendous laughs. They had this great, kind of the laughter of the wise, you know, just to see the world. Um, without it, It's not like spiritual life becomes this kind of grim duty. Okay, now I have to meditate and I have to be serious about it. In 1969, right out of graduate school, I was drafted into the U.S. Army. After I got new clothing, a haircut, and vaccinations, I filled out a stack of forms. One asked for my religion Feeling rebellious, I wrote Druid, Parentheses, Reformed, (laughs) Close Parentheses. Two weeks later, I received my dog tag stamped with my name, social security number, blood type, and Druid, Reformed. (laughs) I wondered how the army would administer last rites for that. (laughs) Station, Sateside, several months before shipping out, I was looking forward to a big um, weekend with the girl that I was dating, when the commanding officer suddenly canceled all weekend passes. A large anti-Vietnam War protest was scheduled he feared many soldiers would attend. I was determined to go camping with my girl. Discovering there was to be a full moon that particular weekend, I requested a two-day pass to celebrate a religious holiday. (laughs) The commanding officer was skeptical. What the hell religion are you, he asked. I told him I was a druid, And the last full moon before the winter solstice was our high holy day. He demanded to see my dog tags, so I showed them to him. He looked in them in stunned silence for a moment, then granted me the pass. As I was on my way out, he said, wait a second, don't you guys kill goats? No, sir, I said, that's the orthodox, I'm reformed. When I was coming back from the Forest Monastery with this wonderful wise teacher, Ajahn Chah, my teacher, and he talked about teaching in America and offering the teachings of meditation and dharma and so forth and how to do that in a new country and so forth, You know how, how it could serve people who are lost, who are suffering. He said, it's a great thing. He said, but maybe, maybe you should call it Christianity. You know, it'll go down easier there. He wasn't, he was very playful. He had this wonderful laugh and he wasn't attached to the form of it. He was attached not to the form but rather freed from that attachment to let people experience the the love and the freedom that is our true nature with whatever words or form were necessary. You know, druid reform, that's okay. (laughs) This from the Buddha he writes in the verses of the Dhammapada where he said, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of living in the way. That's amazing instructions. Live in joy and love even among those who hate. Live in joy and peace even among the troubled. And it doesn't help the troubled for you to kind of dive in and be troubled as well. It's a different movement from the one who knows to actually become compassionate rather than being lost. As Thich Nhat Hanh said, and I repeat this so often, when the crowded Uh, Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. And so that instruction from the Buddha to live in joy and peace, even among the troubled, even among difficulty, is to carry the lamp, of wisdom, to rest in the one who knows. The one who knows also, it turns out, is the compassionate one. Because as we rest in the one who knows, we step out of the small sense of self and the body of fear, the, those kinds of kind of contracted attachments. There becomes more space, more ease, more graciousness. And then a child falls in the road. What do you do? You pick the child up. Somebody's hungry, what do you do? You say, you know, do you want some of the food that I have? Not because you're this great compassionate person, but because you're quiet and present and open. And what else is there to do? As Archbishop Tutu says, in Africa, when you ask someone, how are you, the reply you get is in the plural, even when you're speaking to one person. A man would say, we are well, or we are not well. He himself may be quite well, but his grandmother is not well, so he's not well either. Our humanity, we know, is caught in one another's. The solitary, isolated human being is a fiction. And as the small sense of self dissolves, the body of fear, as we trust the space of knowing, the one who knows, there comes this with this trust a deep love, a compassion for all the ways we've gotten caught, all the ways that other people get caught. This happened for the Buddha after the night of his enlightenment. It's said in the myth or the story. He sat there with this great joy and freedom and then scanned the world with the eyes of wisdom. And tears began to roll down his cheeks because he saw beings everywhere wanting to be happy, yet often doing the very thing that made suffering, acting out of greed and fear and hatred and racism and, you know, blame and um, all the kind of forces of um, aggression and possession that in unhealthy ways that make us suffer. And he began to weep because he knew that there is a way for us to be happy. And and if only people understood, and then he spent the next 45 years offering those teachings. What is man without the beasts, writes Chief Seattle, or spoke Chief Seattle. If all the beasts were gone, Men would die from great loneliness of spirit, for whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man. Um, We're not separate from the whales and the earthworms and the raccoons and deer of this land and the salmon and the streams and the birds of the air. I love reading this piece. Because my daughter gave it to me when she was in third grade. It's in her third grade handwriting. Those of you who are close can see it. Not even completely spelled right. Um, she said, Daddy, I think you could use this for one of your talks. You know. And now, of course, she graduated college. She still can't spell, but that's all, <laughs> <It's> all right. <sighs> Compassion is the natural state of the open heart and open mind. It's, it's inherent, natural to consciousness itself. We don't have to make compassion. We just have to let go of the fears that we have, and it's there in us. And as we sit, we each touch our own measure of sorrow and the sorrows of the world that we carry. And the question is, how do we meet? this measure of sorrow how do we touch it with judgment aversion running away fear denial you know or can we turn toward it with a great heart of compassion that is the same as the one who knows says oh yes this is the measure of suffering as well as the measure of beauty given to me in this life i've been working now trying to raise money and consciousness in various ways for for Burma before the cyclone hit, also because of all the monks marching last year and the nuns and people of Burma. And now in the reports that we're getting back from the foundation for the people of Burma, um, it's so difficult. And yet there are these hundreds of people, including a number of young people who are students who volunteered or who are working, um, carrying food and you know, shelter and clothing, medicine and so forth. One young man, we'll call him his nom de guerre, if you will, his um, mong tin, was driving a truckload of rice that we got from these rice merchants in Rangoon who trust our foundation. We can get the rice and say, we'll pay you later as we can get the money in. Um, And was stopped by these soldiers who were given orders to confiscate all that stuff And they said, sorry, you can't drive in and we're going to confiscate the rice. And he was headed to three villages where they hadn't had any food for two weeks. Um, And he got out of the truck and he said, "Uh, you'll have to shoot me first. And just stood there and looked at them. And these were young soldiers. They weren't that much older than him. And they just looked at each other for a long time, talked about a little bit, and said, okay, you can go on, you can go ahead. And he got his truckload of rice through. Um, we hear it and it's very moving to me anyway and probably to you um, because it's actually the way we're supposed to be. It's the, we are supposed to care for each other and it's as innate to us as this knowing itself. And the one who knows knows the, the, the words from the Buddha go like this that hatred never ceases by hatred but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And, you know, whether it was known <clears throat> by Mahatma Gandhi or Martin Luther King or the ancient principles of Ahimsa and harmlessness of the Buddha in India or in so many other places in the world, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, I think of, because I was talking about it, but Rigoberto Mengshu in, you know, Central America and all over the world, When I was in Palestine and Israel earlier this year, I was so moved by the network of people doing beautiful things—the Palestinian and Israeli women's groups who replant the olive groves, and the former combatants for peace, and the you know in going to Hebron and Ramallah and meeting with the 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 Palestinian Gandhi nonviolent movement. These beautiful people. or or the bereaved mothers who wanted to help others not lose their children on both sides. And the one who knows, realizes that greed and war and racism and so forth, it's simply not the answer, globally or personally. After the Chernobyl nuclear accident, The wind told the story that was being suppressed by the governments. It gave away the truth. It carried the story of danger to other countries. The wind was a poet, a prophet, and a scientist. And there comes a kind of trust that the truth in the end will out, and that the truth will win, however long it takes. It might take a long time in certain cases, but... We turn toward what is right, what is just, what is wise, what is compassionate. And it doesn't matter, you know, how long it takes. And yes, you want to do things and have a result, but ultimately the results aren't given to us. What's given to us is to plant the seeds of compassion over and over again. It says the secret in the Bhagavad Gita is to act well, to act beautifully, without attachment to the fruits of your actions. Which is a really hard lesson. Um, but it's not you're not in charge. It's not given to you to determine how soon the seeds will bear fruit. But if you plant good seeds, they will. In their own time, they will. So compassion is part of the one who knows. The great heart of compassion And we sit with it, we sit with the personal sufferings, our stress and trauma and illness and depression and fear and conflict and the global suffering of the earthquake in China and Darfur that's still going on and the things on our own streets and in our own cities and in our huge and um, completely misguided and uh, terrible prison system where we have more people locked up behind bars, millions of them. You know, one in every 33 people in the United States of America is somehow involved in the prison system, in prison or on parole, or in in some way uh, under the prison system. One in 33 people. I mean, it's crazy. And a lot of people are in there for nonviolent crimes and for things that didn't hurt anybody really, lot for drug addiction, they become the default mental hospitals for you know and when we look, we're afraid that we can't bear it. Sometimes we're afraid that the heart actually can't bear the sorrows of the world or our own. This from Ellie Wiesel, the Nobel Prize winner, he writes, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. And so the one who knows is also the great heart of compassion. This is the way the world is with its tears and its beauty and its longing and its love. And all of these are part of what makes up our life, globally and individually. And there comes a kind of trust that something beautiful can grow from our life, from our words and our actions and those that we touch. And beauty will grow from from them as well. It grows, it forces itself like the green shoots that come through the cracks in the sidewalk compassion does it wants to and it doesn't get in the news again you know being in Palestine and Israel there are these hundreds of groups doing amazing things you never see it on the news I mean I went I did news stuff for Israeli television and European television and articles in the Jerusalem Post and the various newspapers and stuff and there'd be one little article and then there'd be you know 99 other articles about the conflict and stuff because it's uh, news likes conflict, basically. It's more exciting. But it's there. It's there under all these things like love. It's like gravity. It's unstoppable. Um, all these deep connections that people make and remake and remake over the years. Gandhi understood it so beautifully you know when he talked about how he said in the end it's love that wins it triumphs in the end and I remember I like to tell this story one of my favorite compassion stories um, is about a kindergarten teacher who I admire I think she's one of the great kindergarten teachers of the world Peggy And it was during the beginning of the Iraq War, five years ago, was it five years? That's right, six, something, a long time. Um, And uh, before the war started, there were all these supply planes that were flying um, munitions and so forth over to the Middle East. And her kids were out on the playground one day, and these big military planes came low over the school and the playground, and they're loud because the military planes don't have to be silent in the same way commercial aircraft does. And they look different, and they were really scary, and the kids saw them like warplanes, and they come running in, and what's that? And Peggy said, well, those are, what are they, C-130s or something, those great big military supply planes? Those are military supply planes. They're bringing things to the Middle East, to Iraq. Um, Have you heard there might be a war? And most of the kids had heard, because they watch television and they hear their parents talk about it. Well, what's on those planes, Peggy? Is there bombs? Yes, probably. You know, are there guns? Yes. Um, All those kind of things. Um, The kids were thinking about those planes full of bombs. And then one of the kids asked, do they have children there like us? Peggy said, yes, there's lots of children there. And then they said, well, they must not know that. They wouldn't be sending all those bombs. and all those things. They must not know that. We have to let them know. Would you help us? So they ran out to the playground, and they brought paper plates and various things they could, and they made this huge picture of a child and then spelled out the role of Iraq so that the pilots could see it from the air so that they would know that there were children there. Do they have children there like us? They must not know that, you know. There's something in us that knows our real connection, which is to life, to one another. My teacher Nisargadot says, wisdom sees I am nothing and love sees I am everything. And between these two, my life flows. And as you sit and meditate, and find the space of awareness, the one who knows. In some way you get emptier, and in some ways that emptiness allows for a wholeness or a connectedness or a fullness for love to come in, Um, which is unstoppable in the end. It goes on gathering power until it transforms everyone whom it touches. So I see it as a really brave and important and joyful and liberating and perhaps in some way heroic thing to do as well as a delicious and wise practice to take the time to stop and listen to the one who knows in us to come back to the space of wisdom and awareness and compassion. And my teacher, Ajahn Chah, Put it this way. He said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. And then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go. But you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So let's sit for a minute. let yourself rest in the space of awareness with a wise and compassionate heart. So again, I thank you for your kind attention and also for your support and generosity, both for Spirit Rock and Remember the Foundation for the People of Burma. Look on our website. And I have a new website as well that I've just kind of put up for people who are interested. It has a few videos from Monday night, I think four or five Monday night videos and some other stuff. If you're interested, please just look for jackcornfield.org jackhornfield.com, JackCornfield, whatever, all those. Anyway, um, and uh, let's do a little chant before we go. One short, simple chant. In India, when you meet a person, the greeting is to put your hands together and say namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. I see who you really are. And the root of the word namaste in sanskrit or pali is the word namo which means to bow to to pay respects to and so i'd like us to chant namo nine times and as you do you can feel what you want to bow to what's true in yourself your own wisdom and compassion your own tears and sorrow What there is in the world that's difficult that you want to bow to and pay respects to the struggles of people and the You know, whatever you want to offer a bow to inwardly, and then we'll go out into this spring summer evening. great heart of compassion in the one who knows. Have a good week. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the
0: teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit